Thank you for listening to the Life Church of Kansas City, Missouri. Consider supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com, subscribing, and sharing this message with your friends. God bless you. Thank you, Brother Gleason, and it is a delight to be here and uh, to be with you and talk about my kind of my favorite subject, Pentecostal history. Uh, I told Brother Morgan's last night that uh, his uncle, W.C. Parkey, who I guess at one time pastored the Life Church, um, and he's the one that kind of got me down. Started. I, I took a class from him called "People of the Name," and he kind of wet my appetite for this. So I blame it on W. C. Parkey. Yeah. He, uh, he was unusual in his time in the fact that he had a history degree, um, and uh, he he put it to good use. Well, again, I'm delighted to be here, and uh, I won't have you stand much longer. Just I, I do want to say. Um, that it is a privilege to be friends with Brother Gleason, to serve with him. Uh, you know him as pastor here at the Life Church. Um, I usually interact him as the Assistant General Superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, and I know that takes him away from here for a little, you know, every every so often. But he is doing a great service to the kingdom by his service to the United Pentecostal Church. And uh, I had him as a student at UGST. Now, I, what I'm going to say next, I know you're not going to be surprised, but I was surprised. Assistant General Superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church, front row center. When I had him in one class, I think I had 30 students, and in, in he's on the front row in the center. He is not sliding by. He was engaged in the process. And, of course, I, you would expect that, right? Uh, so uh, delighted to call him a friend and to be with him. You may be seated. I'm going to pick up kind of where I left off last night when I uh, talked about Azusa Street uh, and remind you as, as we start this evening that <clears throat> experience is incredibly important and I talked last night a lot about experiential faith, uh, John Wesley's heart being strangely warm. But I want to remind you that the Pentecostal movement was not built on an experience, it was built on a doctrine. And that doctrine was evidential tongues or the or as Parham would say, the Bible evidence or the, or, or the Bible sign of being baptized in the Spirit. The, the, kind of the most famous revival in the Pentecostal movement is the Azusa Street Revival. Um, 312 Azusa Street. I, I, I remember the first time I went to Los Angeles uh, into Azusa Street. I don't know what I was expecting. Um, but Azusa Street's about a block long. That's about it. Uh, actually, where the Azusa Street Mission was now is a Japanese cultural center. And there is a little plaque in the ground that says this is the site of the original Azusa Street Mission. There's a sign on, this, on the side of the a street there, kind of a street marker, saying this is the Azusa Street Mission. But that little building uh, shaped the world. It, it, it was the seminal revival. If... if uh, Topeka was the birthplace, then there's no question that Azusa was the cradle of Pentecostalism. And there are just so many incredible stories about Azusa Street and what happened there. Uh, services started uh, in April of 1906 when they finally went from Bonnie Bray Avenue, purchased that little building uh, that had been abandoned and, and tried to make a church out of it. It was a at one time, it had been a Stephen's AME church, and there are some old pictures existing where you can see stairs going on the outside of it. So you, the actual sanctuary was on the second floor originally, and it was a pitched roof, so it looked like many churches. But there had been a fire somewhere, in the, in, and when they built the church back, uh, they built it with a flat roof. So the picture that you've probably seen of Azusa Street Mission is this flat roof called the Sign on the, on the side would be the Apostolic Faith Mission or the Pacific Apostolic Faith Mission. They actually had church on the first floor and turned the second floor into living quarters. And given that it was a Pentecostal mission, you knew what they called the room upstairs, right? It was the upper room. And I, I talked a little bit about Lucy Farrow yesterday. Lucy lived up there and uh, 
she prayed people through the Holy Ghost in the upper room at Azusa Street. Um, the The services lasted, uh, they went seven days a week for, for about three years, from April of 1906 uh, all the way through to 1908. Uh, and, and people came from everywhere uh, to visit the Azusa Street Mission. Let me tell you a couple of of the, the best stories that I know about Azusa Street and people who visited. Uh, my favorite story, I think, is the story of a uh, southern gentleman from Dunn, North Carolina. His name is G.B. Cashwell, Gaston Barnabas Cashwell, who uh, had heard about the, the Azusa Street mission and boarded a train. And in those days, it would have been about a five-day trip across the United States. He fasted all the way till he got to Los Angeles. He was hungry. He was, a, he was a holiness preacher. He was hungry for this new Pentecost that he'd heard about at Azusa Street. And when he finally makes it to the mission, finally makes it to Azusa Street, uh, he realizes that he hadn't heard the whole story. He is surprised, chagrined, uh, and maybe even appalled that the person leading the mission is a black man. He's just... He just, that, that never occurred to him. He never thought. And so he leaves. He is, he is a product of his time, turns around, walks away from the Azusa mission. He goes back to wherever he's staying, and the Lord works him over. And so he comes back to the Azusa Street mission, kneels in front of Seymour, and said, pray for me. And he receives the baptism of the Spirit and G.B. Cashwell goes back to Dunn, North Carolina, and most of the Pentecostal movement that's in the southeastern part of the United States and in the Carolinas and uh, Georgia and Florida, you can kind of trace back to G.B. Cashwell. So, you know, an unusual story, but uh, the Lord worked it out. Another person who, who visits Azusa Street is uh, Charles Mason, C.H. Mason from Memphis, Tennessee. C.H. Mason uh, and C.H. Price, uh, Charles Jones Price, C.J. Price, I guess, uh, have a church, it's an African-American church predominantly. Uh, It's a holiness church called the Church of God in Christ. And uh, they heard about this incredible revival in Azusa Street, and they decide that C.H. Mason should go check it out. Now, Mason, Mason is kind of opposed to the message. He doesn't think that there's much to it. But as a skeptic, he makes his way to Azusa Street. Price Jones stays. He's actually in Jackson. Um, Mason is from Memphis. Uh, and, and while um, Mason is on his way to Azusa Street, Glenn Cook comes through Memphis and preaches about uh, Pentecost tells them that, as I mentioned last night, that when you were sanctified, you weren't spirit baptized. You, you, need, to be, you need to speak in tongues as the spirit gives utterance. And Price Jones kind of rejects that message, even though he was the one who was most open to it in the beginning. And Mason goes to Azusa Street and, and receives the baptism of the spirit. And then Mason comes back to Memphis and brings the message of Pentecost with him to the church of God in Christ. Uh, he and he and Jones, Price Jones, uh, part ways, and so you have the Church of God Holiness in Jackson, Tennessee. That's a Holiness Church, not a Pentecostal church. And the Church of God in Christ in Memphis, which is a Pentecostal, three works of grace, saved, sanctified, spirit filled. Uh, the Church of God in Christ is actually the largest Pentecostal church in America. Now the Assemblies of God has a larger constituency around the world. But as far as membership in the United States, Church of God in Christ, about 5 million members, C.H. Uh, Mason. Um, A.G. Gar is another kind of interesting story for me from Azusa Street. The earliest Pentecostals, I don't know that I mentioned this yesterday, but um, Parham thought when people received the baptism of the Spirit that you got your missionary tongue. So I mentioned that the Lord was coming back, they thought, quickly, and that the gospel had to be preached in all four corners of the earth. 
And it took a long time to learn a language. So they really thought that the purpose of baptism of the Spirit was you'd figure out where you're called to be a missionary. So if you spoke in Chinese, you should go to China. Um, so uh, A.G. Gar goes to Zusa Street and sees the baptism of the Spirit, he and his wife, uh, and they, they think they're speaking Bengali. So they go to India. They speak in tongues. They don't understand what the Indians are saying in India, and the Indians don't understand, the Bengali don't understand what he's saying. So they decide that that's not the field of their calling. So they go to China. And they think maybe the, maybe they weren't speaking Bengali, but they were speaking uh, Cantonese. And uh, I think you probably guessed what happened next. Uh, they didn't understand anybody in uh, China, nor did anybody in China understand them. Uh, they finally end up in uh, South Carolina. And they actually build a church uh, in Char- uh, or North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, they, they build a church. But he actually is the first person who begins to uh, refute this idea uh, by, I guess because of his experience, that no, when you receive the baptism of the Spirit, you may speak in an earthly language because those are the reports that would be in, in Azusa Street. People would, would come out off the street and they'd hear somebody speak Russian. They'd hear somebody speak you know, Hebrew, the language that, that was one of the signs that people knew this indeed was something supernatural. But Gar is the one that starts uh, them thinking that maybe, maybe when you speak in tongues, it's a heavenly language. It might be earthly, but that's probably, the purpose for tongues is not necessarily to call you to the mission field. And everybody should speak in tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. Um, there are when, when you look at Azusa Street, there are uh, both men and women in leadership. One of the earliest um, people who preaches at Azusa Street and is a, a significant uh, player in Azusa Street is, is a lady named Florence Crawford. Her husband was a real estate developer in Los Angeles, and she gets really involved in the mission and preaches, is on the leadership team. Uh, you may have seen a picture uh, of Azusa Street where both men and women, um, African-Americans, whites, uh, really form this interracial, multicultural, uh, both male and female uh, in, in leadership. But Florence Crawford, she preaches uh, very powerfully. Her husband is a little upset with her because she spends so much time at the mission uh, that uh, he appeals to Seymour would tell him, please, please let her back off a little bit. I'd like to see my wife. Uh, and and um, Seymour does put a little restriction on women in ministry for that reason. But, but ultimately, Florence Crawford goes to, to uh, Oregon. She ends up in Portland, Oregon. And if you go to Portland, Oregon today, there is an apostolic faith church in Portland, Oregon, that traces its roots back to Florence Crawford directly from Azusa Street. Uh, they would be, and you'll hear me say this again uh, a couple times tonight, that I'm going to kind of go through the progression from, from three works of grace to two works of grace to one work of grace. Uh, so Apostolic Faith Mission or Apostolic Faith Church in Portland, Oregon is three works of grace. Saved, sanctified, spirit-filled. So today in the, in the United States... Usually the churches that have Church of God in their name, Church of God in Christ, three works of grace, saved, sanctified, spirit-filled. Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, saved, sanctified, spirit-filled. A Pentecostal Holiness Church, it's another one of these, sometimes they'll call themselves Wesleyan Pentecostals, but they believe in the second work of, of grace. Um, another lady that that uh, is in leadership at Azusa Street is a, is a lady named Clara Lum. Uh, she, kind of the sector of the church, and I think one of the reasons that Azusa Street has such an impact is they put out a, a, a magazine. Uh, we call them the Azusa Street Papers today or the Absolute Faith Papers. Essentially, it's a periodical that they publish uh, every month from September 1906 on till the, till the end of the story I'm going to tell you in just a moment. Uh, and and at its apex, probably 50,000 people 
receive that magazine. So, you know, let me just stop and tell you that if you really want to impact the world, you write. If you want to impact the world today, you preach. But if you want to impact the world long term, you write. Um, what I, I meant to tell you yesterday that I, uh, we opened up Pentecostal Publishing House in Australia, and I saw that they had somebody had bought twelve copies of Follow the Lead in Australia. So, impacting the world, the written word. Um, Claire Lum. There, there, can I just be, let me just gossip just a little bit. Um, there is a rumor that's certainly believed amongst the African-American uh, Pentecostal contingency in that uh, Clara Lum and William Seymour have a romance. Um, I, I don't, I've never found any evidence of it. I, I have found evidence that people believe it. Uh, in fact, I've heard that, that Seymour reached out to C.H. Mason from Memphis, Church God in Christ, and said, should I marry this white woman? And Mason said, it wouldn't be good at this time for you to do that. I don't know if that's true or not, but here's what happened shortly after that. Uh, he, Seymour gets married. He marries Jenny Moore, a young African-American lady in Los Angeles. And Clara Lum leaves the mission. And she takes with her the mailing list. There's no computer backup. Can't get it off the cloud. She takes the 50,000 names with her to Portland, Oregon to work with Florence Crawford. <clears throat> and some people would suggest that's the that's the end of the first wave at Azusa Street. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but uh, it is kind of interesting that, you know, I was struck by this the other day when I was reading something in the Bible about, I mean, one of the reasons I have such great confidence in the Bible is the Bible never, never paints people as purely heroes. I mean, the man after God's own heart, David, certainly has clay feet. And, and the Bible never hides that. You know, I, I know a little bit about politics. I know a little bit about PR work. And you always put your best foot forward and you spin your best story. The Bible doesn't spin. The Bible tells us that the, the, the people who we look to as our heroes were indeed humans. And I think these early Pentecostals were humans as well. And, and we see uh, their, their great hunger for God. We see how they're used of God. But nobody is going to stand up here and tell you that they were perfect paragons of virtue. They were people like you and me who are hungry to do what they can for God. And uh, they had a blind spot or two. Often when they're confronted with their blind spot, they repented, kind of like we should do, right? Uh, before I get... Uh, well, l- let me talk about one more person at Azusa Street that I, th- I think is important. There were both blacks and whites, and, and, and probably more blacks than anybody, than any ethnic group at Azusa Street. But there also were Hispanics. Uh, you may know that California, uh, before it was part of the United States, was part of Mexico, or at least it was Spanish, uh, had some roots in, in Spain, and, and there were long standing people uh, of Spanish ethnicity in the Los Angeles area. One of those guys was Luis Lopez, uh, and he uh, received the baptism of the Holy Ghost at Azusa Street. And the interesting part for me about Luis Lopez is that he, he was baptized in Jesus' name at Azusa Street. So I'm going to talk about Jesus' name baptism in 1913 in Roseco in just a moment. Uh, but this predates that in 1909 or 1910. Luis Lopez is baptized in Jesus' name at Azusa Street and ultimately becomes part of the oneness movement. So already at Azusa Street, there is this hunger for, for um, more truth, for further re- restoration. Again, before I leave Azusa Street, I wanted to just take a little time and tell you, and I maybe pick up on what Brother Gleason said just a little bit. Uh, 1906, 1907, 1908, there were some things happening around the world 
where the Spirit was being poured out in conjunction with Azusa Street, but not directly tied to Azusa Street. So in, in India, uh, in subcontinent, there was a uh, really a high-caste Indian woman uh, named uh, Pandita Ramabai, who uh, felt a great, first of all, she converted to Christianity, and then she had a, felt a great need for the, the, low, the low caste, the outcast people of India, particularly young women. And she started a mission called Mukti Mission. And in 1905, 1906, there are reports of people in India at Mukti Mission speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives evidence. So you can't make a, you can't make a link between Azusa Street and Mukti, but it's happening at the same time. Uh, in, in uh, Chile, in, in uh, South America, uh, Santiago, Chile, there's a, an American missionary named Willie Hoover. And he has a friend who's at Mukti that he kind of went to school with. And they, she tells him a little bit about what's happening at Mukti. And a revival breaks out in Santiago, uh, Chile, in fact, one of the largest Pentecostal churches, called the Pentecostal Methodist Church in, in Chile, that really doesn't have roots in Azusa Street. You can't make a, a tie, but, but it happens because people are hungry. And that church would have had probably 60 or 70,000 members in the local church um, before it reached its apex. And then um, kind of in the, in the backdrop, kind of the untold story of Azusa Street, there you may have heard of a famous Welch revival. Anybody heard of the Welch revival? It's a little bit before Azusa Street. There's a young man named Evan Roberts, who um, an incredible um, move of God that that sweeps through Wales. Uh, and I, while it doesn't, well, we don't have you know people talking about speaking in tongues, when you read accounts of what happens in Wales, you draw the conclusion that they indeed were speaking in tongues. And it, it, it impacted Wales in such an incredible way that uh, Wales is, is it's mining, it's coal mining country. It's part of what's called the Celtic Fringe in, in, in Great Britain. And most of the people there were miners. At one point, the mine owners say to the people who are working for them, don't bring back any more stolen tools. We've got all we need and more. Because this idea of restitution, this idea of, of when I repent of my sins, I'm going to make a difference in my life. I'm going to make a, make a change. I, one, of the, one of the prized possessions I have is a letter that the, the first... Uh, former mission secretary of the United Pentecostal Church named Wynn Stairs. He's actually the founder of the church that I grew up in. He worked for the railroad that my father worked for. And there's a letter that he, uh, that he wrote. The, it was called the Canadian Pacific Railway uh, after he became converted, after he became Pentecostal. He wrote them a letter and he, he said, I, I want to apologize, make, make things right, uh, there are some days I didn't work as hard as I should have worked, so I stole from you. So please forgive me. Uh, I took a tool or two home, and I shouldn't have taken shouldn't have taken that home. They used to give them a little bit of time off on Friday to cash their check, and he said I, I took too much time on Friday to cash my check. So I'm I'm apologizing. And then the line that I really loved, he said, "In those days I was serving the devil, but now I'm serving the Lord." So these people were incredibly intense in their, in their walk with God. Um, people from around the world went to Wales to see this Welsh revival. One of the people who uh, is involved in that Welsh revival is a guy named Joseph Smale. He's from England, uh, pastored for a while in the Channel Islands, and then he ended up in Prescott, Arizona. I don't know how you get from the Channel Islands in England to Prescott, Arizona. And then from Prescott, Arizona, he made it to Los Angeles. And for a while, he pastored First Baptist Church 
in uh, Los Angeles, California. And he heard about this Welsh revival, so he made his way back to Wales. And when he came back, he came back with this incredible hunger to see God do more. And there is a split in the uh, church, the Baptist church, that basically they're not as hungry for God as he is. So he starts a new church called the New Testament Church. And many of the original people from Azusa Street were out of Smale's church. Jenny Moore, the, who married um, William Seymour, she was a member of Smale's church. So the, there's a confluence of ideas and things that come together in 1906, 1907 that I believe that God was orchestrating to bring this incredible revival that he has uh, brought from the, from the Pentecostal, or from Azusa Street, kind of that founding revival. So people came from all over to Azusa Street. Um, one, of the, one of the greatest lines uh, from Azusa Street, Frank Bartleman was a holiness preacher who comes to Azusa Street. Uh, he writes in a lot of holiness periodicals. And then he wrote a book called When Pentecost Came to Los Angeles. And in it, kind of probably my favorite line from the whole Azusa Street Revival, he says, the color line was washed away in the blood. Um, and, and, and tomorrow, um, I, I'm, I'm hoping to make a presentation tomorrow on reclaiming our prophetic voice. Pentecostals, in particular oneness Pentecostals, were ahead of the curve when it came to racial and gender issues, and uh, we need to reclaim our prophetic voice. So I'm going to talk about race, gender, and ethnicity in oneness Pentecostalism tomorrow. Um, I, I think that we have a message the world needs to hear, and we need a church that looks like heaven. And Revelation tells us from every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. That's what the church looks like. And we should reflect. The church on earth should reflect the church in heaven. And we're in, you all know we're in difficult times, but the church can have a prophetic voice, and the Pentecostal church in particular. So I, I hope to present that tomorrow. Um, Azusa Street not only impacted the world, it also impacted Los Angeles. Seymour, and sometimes we... We underplay Seymour. Uh, we know that he was poor, uh, born of, both of his parents were slaves. He, he caught smallpox when he was in uh, Cincinnati, and the smallpox scarred his face. He lost the sight in one eye because of smallpox. And then, and then there, Bartleman talks about him being an incredibly humble man, uh, and I, I don't doubt that that's not true. I mean, there are these reports of him putting his head in a box. The, the, the church at Azusa Street was set in a kind of a, the pulpit was in the middle. And seats were all around it. And there were these um, orange crates or shoe boxes that he would put it, probably put his head down on. He's probably praying, probably rather than having his head inside. So it's sometimes the, the caricature of Seymour is that he was, without talent and uh, an accident of history. But that's not true. William Seymour was a gifted leader and got, and he, much of what Azusa Street was, was because Seymour could, could marshal forces, could lead people. Uh, and, and one of the things he led people to do is in those days in Los Angeles, like many cities, you had streetcars. And he would send people to the end of the streetcar and you'd start a church. Or they would have an open air service, what we would call a street service. So in, in Pasadena, in, um, Monrovia, all the little towns surrounding uh, L.A., when the streetcar went out there, the preachers would get off, the workers, often they were called workers, would get off the streetcar. They'd start singing and they'd have services and usually they'd plant a church. They didn't use that language of planting a church. They were doing missions because they didn't think the Lord was going to delay his coming that long. They were, he, was, he was coming quickly. So they weren't thinking about what the church will look like in 10 years. They were thinking about we need to pray people through the Holy Ghost so they can go in the rapture. 
So he, he not only impacts the world, and, and, he, and he does. I mean, people come um, from Europe, Thomas Ball Barrett, although he doesn't really come to Azusa Street, he's impacted by Azusa Street, takes the, the Pentecostal message back to uh, Nor- the Scandinavian countries, a, a body, uh, takes the Pentecostal message back to England. Uh, there's a, a couple of guys out of Chicago that take the Pentecostal message to Brazil. So before long, from Azusa Street, the Pentecostal message spreads its tentacles around the world. And, and uh, again, today, probably 650 million Pentecostals, Charismatics, and Pentecostal-like people in the world. Any questions on Azusa Street? Yes, sir. They they did fund them, although they often were missionaries with a one-way ticket. So the funding usually meant we'll get you there. And uh, we'll, and often one of the functions of these newspapers or these periodicals, people would send missionary offerings into these periodicals, and missionaries were funded. They would they would forward that money on to missionaries. Uh, many of them go to China. Uh, this is before the communist revolution in China, and China. Um, there, in fact, there's probably a great underground church in China called the True Jesus Church. That really its roots are from Azusa Street. A guy named Bern Bernstein, who encounters um, Azusa Street, or the message of Azusa Street. Brother Haney's, if I can get this straight now, Brother Haney's mother's family, Kenneth Haney, his mother um, was a Gray. So David Gray, who pastored for years in, in, in San Diego. Frank Gray, were, that was his, uh, David Gray's father, all of Haney's father. Um, they were missionaries to Japan. And they found somewhere a piece of paper that talked about what was happening in Azusa Street. And they came home from Japan and went to Azusa Street and received the baptism of the Spirit. So there are just, I mean, I, I could, I really could stand up here for another couple of hours and tell you story after story. Brother Morgan will remember Jacob Nelson. He was a kind of a fixture at Gateway when we were students there. He actually pastored here in Kansas City. Um, his father was a sailor, a Norwegian sailor, or Scandinavian. I don't, I don't know if it was Swedish or Norwegian. But they rounded the Cape of Good Hope or whatever, whatever at the end of South America. Is that Good Hope? Or is that the one? In, that's Africa? Cape Horn then, right? Cape Horn is in, the, in the, that. Um, it was a sailing ship. So, you know, that's, you're way, way south, which is the equivalent of being way, way north. Uh, the, the ice stop. He's up in the rigging. He thinks he's going to die. And he promises God, if you get me to land, I'm going to church. And they land in Los Angeles, and he ends up at Azusa Street. So, again, there's just this incredible impact of of Azusa Street. Uh, Particularly these first three years uh, until... Claire Alum takes away the uh, the the mailing list and the, and the and I and the, you know we hunger for a revival. At least I hope we do, right? We want the power of God to move, but you know the intensity of revival. We can't live there all the time. I mean, there's an ebb and flow in revival because because we're dealing with humans, and so you can only go flat out so long. So you know sometimes we look at this revival that goes seven days a week for three years, and we say, what happened? Well, one of the things that happened is they went seven days a week for three years. Uh, but there, there will be a couple of more waves at Azusa Street. And one of the waves at Azusa Street 
It was started by a guy named William Durham. William Durham was from Chicago, Illinois, and he, he pastored a North Avenue mission in, in Chicago. Probably, I think we're almost certain of this, Andrew Urshan would have been associated with North Avenue Mission. Andrew Urshan was a young Persian immigrant, worked in the, in the uh, restaurant world when he immigrated. Uh, they were, they're often called the Persian boys. Uh, but they, they ended up at, a, at North Avenue Mission. Durham hears about the baptism of the Spirit and makes a trip to Los Angeles and receives the baptism of the Spirit at Azusa Street Mission and goes back to Chicago and, and turns his North Avenue mission from a holiness mission into a Pentecostal mission. And it be, Chicago becomes one of the early centers of Pentecostalism. Uh, again, Andrew Urshan is from there. Um, there. There's kind of some residue left over from Zion, which was the uh, Dowies. Remember I talked about Dowie yesterday? So there were some Zionites around that come into this, this mission. But Durham's important not just for the fact that he kind of started the second wave of Azusa Street. He's important because he brings a change in doctrine to the Pentecostal movement. Uh, he challenges this idea of sanctification. So he preached a famous message at the Stone Church in Chicago, William Piper's church. Uh, the message was called the finished work of Calvary. And what he, what he suggests in that sermon is that sanctification is not a second distinct work of grace. It's not a crisis experience or a, a punctiliar experience where it's a point in time. But sanctification is a process that begins when you're saved and continues on in the life of a believer. You're not, you're not just sanctified once and for all. I wish to God it were true. But... Uh, we, we start this journey of sanctification, this journey of growing in holiness. So, and that happens, you know, what Durham says, you don't, there isn't the second work of grace. The cross is sufficient. And it will change your life. You don't need this second experience. So he, um, he goes back to Azusa Street. Seymour's out of town when he ends up in Azusa Street and he preaches the finished work of Calvary at Azusa Street. And this is kind of one of the ironies of, of the whole Azusa Street story. When Seymour hears about uh, Durham's message, he locks him out. So you remember how he got locked out of, out of uh, Santa Fe and 9th and Santa Fe? He, he, and so you have this, you really then you have a split in the Pentecostal movement. The, the people who are finished work and the people who are three works of grace. And it's, a, it's an incredible controversy. Incredible controversy. Parham, who has been sidelined because of, we'll just say he's been sidelined. There's some, some, Parham had some issues. Um, but he says, the guy that preaches that finished work, message, God's going to kill him. And Durham, 39 years old, contracts tuberculosis. And dies. And Parham, gracious Parham, says, I told you so. Um, but particularly in the South, Mid South, uh, um, Howard Goss, Ian Bell, Mac Penson, all these guys I know you're on first name basis with, H.G. Uh, Rogers, uh, are, are open to this finished work of Calvary. Uh, and, and it's, 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 it's growing. The Assemblies of God is a finished work organization. In fact, in 1914, I'm ahead of myself just a little bit, but in 1914, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, they, have a, you know, they put a call out. In the, in the UPCI, we talk about the merger. When, when the Pentecostal Assemblies of Jesus Christ and the Pentecostal Church Incorporated merged to form the United Pentecostal Church, which happened in 1945, but in the AG, they talk about the call. And the call went out in 1914 to start this new organization that really was a finished work organization. That you were saved and then you were spirit-filled. 
So for, for those of you that have assemblies of God friends, uh, they believe that you should speak in tongues to receive the baptism of the Spirit. But they also believe that you receive the Spirit, not the baptism of the Spirit, but you receive the Spirit when you believe. So there's the, everybody, everybody who believes receives the Spirit, but not everybody is baptized with the Spirit. So, I won't spend any much, much more time on the finished work because I want to, I want to move to the oneness uh, movement as quickly as I can. Um, <clears throat> R.J. Scott, who an evangelist uh, who pastored, by the way, Brother Gleason, uh, Midway Tabernacle at one point uh, in, in Minneapolis or St. Paul, I guess that is, St. Paul. Um, he visits a a campaign. F.F. F. Bosworth is a uh, very successful pastor in Dallas, Texas. He's a, he's a a great healing. You know, he, he, a lot of miracles happen in Bosworth's uh, ministry, and he has this. What in those days they called them campaigns. He has this campaign, and he has a, a woman preacher named Maria Woodworth Etter come hold this campaign. It lasts for weeks at a time. As many as 5,000 people show up nightly to this campaign. And there's a great move of God. And, and one of the people who shows up is, is R.J. Scott. R.J. Scott sees what God's doing in Dallas and says, you know, we need something like this back in Los Angeles. See if we can bring healing to this Pentecostal movement, this kind of split between the finished work people and the three works of grace people. So in 1913... He calls a worldwide camp meeting uh, at, a, at a place in Los Angeles, well, just north of Los Angeles, between Los Angeles and Pasadena. Of course, if you go to Los Angeles today, it's all, it's all city. But in those days, there, there actually were distinct, there, there was actually open land between, uh, between towns. When the Zusa Street Revival breaks out, Los Angeles has about 200,000 people. So it's grown a tad since then but they he decides to have a camp meeting in a place called a row seco a, a, a dry valley um, between pasadena and los angeles and he's had some experience there because during the azusa street revival uh, scott was invited by seymour to have a camp meeting there and so in the summertime they would go out to row seco and uh, in good pentecostal fashion they'd set up campgrounds with Hallelujah Avenue and Holy Ghost Street, you know, you know how we do. Uh, and so he, he's wanting to recreate that. And he decides that let's have this camp meeting at Aurora and let's invite Maria Woodworth Etter. She's done an incredible job at Bosworth Church in Dallas. She'll draw a crowd. Maybe she, you know, she can uh, preach a message that will bring us back together. In fact, uh, Woodworth Etter feels like the Lord's going to do a new thing. And so there is this uh, camp meeting at Aurora Seiko. And Woodworth Edder, again, is the keynote speaker. But during that, during that camp meeting, they're having a baptismal service. Uh, and they want to preach a little bit about baptism before they baptize anybody. The preacher is, I have to say it because it's important to get everything right, a Canadian evangelist. Uh, a Canadian evangelist, Ari McAllister, is preaching that message, baptismal service, and he's really preaching against a doctrine uh, that was more common than I thought. Uh, Ewart says in his book, he's preaching against trine immersion. Uh, evidently, there were people who were baptizing you three times. You went down once for the Father, once for the Son, and once for the Spirit. And McAllister saying that's never practiced anywhere in the New Testament. This idea of being baptized. In almost a throwaway line, he says, in fact, nobody in the New Testament is baptized any other way than in the name of Jesus Christ. And that almost accidental uh, sermon orchestrated by the Lord by Aaron McAllister sparks this, the oneness movement. 
Uh, there's a guy in the camp named uh, Sheppy, John Sheppy. The next morning, he, he runs through the camp in good Pentecostal fashion saying, this is it. This is, this is the new truth. Uh, God is leading us into some new, he's restoring some more truth to the church. Uh, it's, it's kind of controversial. Um, not necessarily baptism in Jesus' name because people had been baptized in Jesus' name before. I mentioned that Goss was baptized in Jesus' name in 1903 by, by uh, Parham and Galena. <clears throat> but eventually what will happen is that people will be rebaptized. They had been baptized in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but now they see the need to be rebaptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So for the next year or so, some people begin to study this whole idea of Jesus' name baptism. Uh, Durham has passed away. He had a paper called the Pentecostal Testimony, and when he died, the paper died with him. But some of the people who had kind of been his lieutenants or his associates, uh, Frank Ewart, had been a kind of assistant pastor to him, a church that they had in Los Angeles. G.T. Haywood, African-American pastor from uh, in one of the largest Pentecostal churches in, uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, Ari McAllister were the, and, and Glenn Cook. Uh, they, they have a magazine called The Good Report. And if you read your way, one of the things I get to do, I get to do because I study history. I know you're all jealous, but I get to read through all these old periodicals. Uh, and if you read your way through these good reports, you can see the emergence of oneness doctrine. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, as they've discovered truth. And there was a hunger to go to restore the church to its apostolic roots. Uh, Goss says in, in the book that his wife wrote called The Winds of God, he says that Pentecostals were always looking for a new thing. And it wasn't that they were looking for controversy. They just, they, they wanted to restore the church and they were afraid that if you don't walk into truth, God would quit revealing truth to you. Uh, now they, what, what's not told often by critics of oneness Pentecostalism is that God says you, when you found something new, you felt like you found a new truth, you waited to preach that till you were at a conference. And you preached that at a conference and people at the conference would judge whether or not what you're saying is balderdash or truth. So it wasn't like they were trying to find um, some, and we use the word sometimes revelation, that God reveals to us. And it's, it's a fine and proper word, but some people think about revelation as being extra biblical revelation. Pentecostals weren't looking for extra biblical revelation. They were trying to find out what does the Bible see? What have we, what have we read that we haven't seen? You ever, you ever had that moment when you, you read something maybe for the fifth time and you said, how did I never see that before? And that's kind of what motivated these early Pentecostals. So they studied in, in 1914. So one year after Roseco, April of 1914, um, Glenn Cook and Frank Ewart rebaptize each other in Jesus' name. And that becomes what's known as the new issue. So if you've read some Pentecostal history, you see this new, new issue people. So the old issue was finished work. So the second issue, the new issue, was baptism in Jesus' name. So that happens in, in 1914, and, and Cook then starts traveling across the United States, goes to Oklahoma, uh, ends up in Indianapolis, uh, baptizes 479 of G.T. Haywood's people in Jesus' name in the, is it the Spring River. Anybody from Indianapolis? Whatever river it is that goes through the White River? The White River. Um, there in, in Indianapolis. And Indianapolis becomes a strong, strong center for uh, oneness Pentecostalism. And Haywood, uh, whose church is probably 60% African American and 40% Caucasian, that does an incredible work, one of, the, one of the incredible people in the early Pentecostal story. So 
That's Jesus' name baptism. And then on the heels of Jesus' name baptism comes this, you know, they, they ask this question. They theologize a little bit. They ask, why is this so important? What does it mean? Why should we be baptized in Jesus' name? And why should we, why, why is it important to be rebaptized in Jesus' name? And then they, they, and I think Haywood is really the one that I think first articulates this. He begins to recognize that, that water baptism is birth of the water, John chapter 3, verse number 5. And spirit baptism is birth of the spirit. So they, they, they grasp this whole idea that full salvation means that you, are, you repent. And, you know, strangely, it's all put together pretty concisely in Acts 2.38. You repent, are baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of your sins, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost. And that becomes the, the message of one Pentecostalism. So you go from three works of grace, saved, sanctified, spirit-filled, two works of grace, which saved and saved and spirit filled to really one work of grace in the life of a one Pentecostals that all three parts. Now I I'm, I don't like to use the word steps because these don't happen necessarily in linear fashion. It's absolutely possible for people to be baptized by the Spirit before they're baptized in water. So I like to talk about uh, that the complete package to what it means to be born again needs to be born of the water and of the spirit. It might not happen exactly like Acts 2.38, repentance, baptism, and, and infilling of the spirit. In fact, it, it doesn't happen that way in Acts chapter 10 when, when Peter is surprised when Cornelius' household receives the baptism of the spirit. He, he struggled with some prejudice. He wouldn't have invited them to be filled with the spirit. But when the Lord shows up and fills them with the spirit, he said, how can I not baptize them? Because they have received the baptism of the Spirit. So, uh, in, over the next couple of years, the, the oneness movement begins to take shape. I, I could argue, uh, and I can usually argue about most things, but I could argue uh, that, that 1913 is the birth of the Pentecostal, oneness Pentecostal movement. I also could argue that 1914 is the birth of the oneness Pentecostal movement because that's where they rebaptized. Cook and Ewart rebaptized each other in Jesus' name. I also could argue that 1916 is the birth of the movement. It's when the assemblies of God kicked the oneness people out. So let me, let, me, let me get to that story. I should give you a break, shouldn't I? Um, let me go a little, little longer, and then we'll, we'll wrap up a little early tonight, if that's all right. Um, in Jackson, Tennessee, 19... 14, 1915, they have the third interstate camp meeting in Jackson, Tennessee. H.G. Rogers is the, kind of the host of that. I, I mentioned to you that in 1914, the Assemblies of God was formed, and the first general superintendent, for lack of a better term, general chairman of the Assemblies of God was a guy named Ian Bell, Endorus something Bell. I, I, would, I would use initials too if my first name was Endorus. So Ian Bell is the first general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. He is at that camp meeting in Jackson, Tennessee. And it's just, and again, this is good Pentecostal lingo. It's just not happening. It's just not, the fire is not falling like you want it to fall. And, and Bell sends a telegram to a pastor in, in uh, Indianapolis, L.V. Roberts, pastor's Oak Hill Tabernacle in in. Indianapolis and said, come immediately to Jackson and bring your message. So L.V. Roberts jumps on a train, makes it south of Jackson, Tennessee, and preaches with the mighty God in Christ, baptism in Jesus' name. And the Assemblies of God chairman gets baptized in Jesus' name. Um, and it looked like for a while that the oneness position was going to capture the Assemblies of God. Uh, Bell later reneges on that and said, I probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, kind of goes back on it. And, and they're trying, the, the assemblies of God are trying to figure out, are they going to embrace this new message or reject it? Uh, and they have a couple of conferences, often in St. Louis, where they first they say, you can do it either way. 
you want to baptize in Jesus' name, you can. If you want to baptize in the name of the Father, the Holy Spirit, you can do that. Both are acceptable. Um, but increasingly, there is uh, pressure brought to bear by people who, who are afraid of the restorationist impulse in one is Pentecostalism and who want to accommodate to the broader culture. And they, they're afraid of rejecting the, on, the, the long-held doc, Trinitarian doctrine. And so in 1916, Turner Hall in St. Louis, they have a, like the fourth annual, wouldn't be annual because it's only third, but it's the fourth conference of the Assemblies of God. And they pass a statement of fundamental truths. When they start in 1914, Assemblies of God say that they're going to have no creed but Christ. They have no statement of faith. They, feel, they think that creeds or statements of faith are divisive and they don't want to divide. But by 1916, they see this emerging oneness message that's uh, capturing the Assemblies of God. So they want, to, they want to put together the statement of fundamental truths. And if you read through that statement of fundamental truths, the, the one that they spend their time on is the statement about the Trinity. And they make a very elaborate and uh, detailed uh, statement of faith on the Trinity. And because of that, the oneness brothers and sisters that are in the Assemblies of God walk out of that conference, and that really forms the oneness Pentecostal movement. And it is John 3, 5, water and spirit baptism. It's baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins. And it is the, the language that they used often is the mighty God in Christ, or all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. There are some scriptures that they quoted frequently. Uh, probably the earliest apologist and best was, was G.T. Haywood, who wrote extensively about, uh, and he was probably the most creative uh, early theologian. Of, of any Pentecostal stripe, it's, he was an extraordinary person uh, that God used in, in, in a mighty way to, to bring truth, not just uh, the truth about the mighty God in Christ, uh, but really this notion of interracial, I mean, he, he picked up the spirit of Azusa Street and, Azusa, and, and his church, Christ Tabernacle, Christ Temple, excuse, Christ Temple in in, in uh, Indianapolis models that Azusa Street interracial multicultural church. Any questions about oneness theology, oneness Pentecostalism? It spreads pretty rapidly, um, and ultimately, the United Pentecostal Church grows out of this stream um, I, I will tell you and I would love you know, I, I, I teach modern Pentecostal movements every year at Urshan and the, the part of my syllabus that grows is the book list there's just so many good books they're writing them all the time and I'm learning more and more each year um, as, as new books but one of the best new books coming it's out, been out probably five years uh, is, is uh, Talmadge French's book on G.T. Haywood, uh, Early Interracial Origins of Oneness Pentecostalism. G he did an incredible piece of history. And nobody knew where this, the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World came from. It, it was rumored to come from Azusa Street, maybe, maybe from Portland, Oregon. Its, its beginnings were mysterious, shrouded in the fog of history. Uh, but the French, Dr. French, strangely enough, was able to find the history of the PAW in FBI records. Early Pentecostals were pacifists. And World War I was starting. And they wanted to find out who these, this new Pentecostal Assemblies of the World organization, the people that belonged to that were saying they're not going to submit to the draft. They were not going to join the war effort. C.H. Uh, Mason, uh, Church God in Christ, I mentioned, he spent some time in prison for his opposition to the war uh, early on. But, but the French has done a great job, and, and we know that the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World go all the way back to probably 1907 and out of Azusa Street. It was a Trinitarian organization until G.T. Haywood joins, and he turns it into a oneness organization. And by 19, 
18, it really is the oneness organization. Um, and I'll talk a little bit tomorrow about what happens to that and uh, some things that we did right and some things that we did wrong and, and try to set some direction about where we should go in the future to build a church that looks like heaven on earth. All right. Any any questions at all? Over here, yes. Okay. The um, the, the best book out on Azusa Street. It's called the Azusa Street Mission and Revival. It's by Cecil Robeck. And he, he, he teaches at Fuller in Los Angeles. And he is a Seymour. I mean, he, know, he knows more about Seymour than anybody. And it's a well-written book. If you really want, that's, that's the best one on Azusa Street. Um, but the French's book on uh, oneness, uh, G.T. Haywood, oneness Pentecostalism, early, early, yeah, early interracial origins of oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, it's just, it's a little, you know, these are, oftentimes these are doctoral dissertations. So they're, you have, to, you have to read a little bit, but that's all right, right? When I was, when I was doing a PhD, usually it's theology books, not history books. History books are usually light and airy and just pull you in. Theology books are the tough ones. But I'd be reading those theology books. The only way I could pay it, the only way I could grasp it is read out loud. I'd be in the living room reading. Kids were younger in those days. And Marcia would be saying, don't leave Dad alone. He's doing those read out loud books. That's the only way I could, I could grasp the, the dense. Uh, but these, the history books, but the French's book is a, is a really good book. David Reed has a book on In Jesus' Name. That's probably the best history of, of um, oneness Pentecostalism. I do have a book on Howard Goss. That, uh, so yeah, same myself. I, I try to argue that, that he was both a primitivist and a pragmatist. Um, and then your early first-person books, Frank Ewart's book, on the phenomena of Pentecost. He was there as an observer. He he doesn't write the book till the 1940s, but he was actually there at Azusa Street. So you get this first-person account, uh, Bartleman's book on uh, on how Pentecost came to Los Angeles. You can still get, um, and there's just, uh, I just found a new book recently on the True Jesus Church in China. There's a possibility that the largest oneness Pentecostal church might be in China, and it might be an underground church called the True Jesus Church. That kind of uh, that's uh, a great read. Uh, I'd have to pull my syllabus up. I I don't remember. So female author, um, but I don't remember her name off the top of my head. But usually there's, you know. I'm looking for new bookshelves all the time. My wife is on a quest to get for me to get rid of my books. I don't know what possesses her. You need to pray for her. But uh, I just think I need more shelves. She thinks I need to pare them down, get rid of those things. Give them away my babies. Uh, let, let me just brag on the United Pentecost Church for a moment. Um, tell you that in the last little while, uh, UPCI has funded, uh, we have a place called the Center for the Study of One is Pentecostalism. New building on the Urshan campus that's remodeled and we're, we're in the process of building a state-of-the-art museum to tell the oneness story and we have the best collection of oneness artifacts and history that anybody in the world has and, and uh, we're in the process of putting that archive up online and if you ever get to St. Louis, stop by and see the Center for the Study of Oneness Pentecostalism. It is a, the Rigdon family, both Sister Rigdon and Brother Rigdon, did remarkable collecting of 
and some artifacts. We have a we have a violin that Peter Berg played at Azusa Street. Uh, I was able to pick up John Sheppy's Bible, the guy that ran through Orosoka. He lent it to me, then I can't find him. He didn't. He's dead. His grandson wanted to sell it to me, and I didn't want to pay what he wanted. I said, how about just lending it to me for a little bit? And he did. And then I tried to send it back to him, and I can't find him. So we have his Bible. The spirit, in, in spirit, we would send, if I could find him, I would send it back to him. But uh, he, uh, in fact, you know, one of the, we did a celebration for in 1913, 2013. I wasn't there in 1913. Uh, I'm old, but not that old. Um, in 2013, we did a celebration at Oroseco. We actually dedicated a bench. There's a park. There's a park in Oroseco where that original camp meeting, and there's a bench there that says this is the site of the historic 1913 campground. So the Southern California District of Pentecostal Church uh, kind of did a celebration, but the Bernard preached, and he preached out of that Sheppy Bible uh, at uh, Oroseco. And, you know, you, you'd better pull the string on me because I can do this for a while. So I know it's Saturday night. I so appreciate you coming out uh, and, and here, listening. I, I'm convinced that the way forward is by looking back. Years ago, I heard a futurist being interviewed at the beginning of a year and uh, on the radio, and they were kind of the, 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 the uh, interviewer kind of got, took a rabbit trail off to the side. He said, oh, by the way, what does a futurist do all day? How do you become a futurist? And what's a, fut- what's a futurist study? And, it, and the futurist said, a futurist studies history because you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And my commitment to Pentecostalism and oneness Pentecostalism and the history of oneness Pentecostalism is not just about paying honor to those who are worthy of honor and telling the story that needs to be told, but I want to help shape where we go if the Lord should tarry in the future. And we only go this on the straight path if we know where we've been. Again, thank you so much for indulging me. And uh, Brother Gleason, come back and close out here.